Welcome to Conversations from the Leading Edge, a monthly radio show and podcast featuring interviews about extraordinary advances in the area of peace and conflict studies happening at or around Columbia University. Each month, we feature interviews with scientists and thought leaders who are conducting groundbreaking work aimed at managing conflict constructively and sustaining peace both locally and globally. My name is Peter T. Coleman, and I'm coming to you from the studios of WKCR at Columbia University. The show is sponsored by AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And now for today's show. We hope you enjoyed the diversity of presentations that we have heard from the September 26th Perspectives on Peace event at Columbia University on education and empowerment in the refugee crisis. The presentations included a filmmaker, an international development practitioner working in preschool education, a social entrepreneur and activist who runs a tutoring and Arabic language learning program, and a Columbia professor who leads social entrepreneurship in higher education. For more information about the event, contact AC4 at Columbia's Earth Institute. These were selected by the people who organized this evening because they show something that we don't necessarily see by reading the newspaper and the statistics, which is the voice. We see the, the individual children and youth. Okay. <laughs> I could use my teacher voice. <laughs> um, and these children, as you see, have their individuals, they're authentic, they're genuine, they're kids like every other kid in a way, but under very different circumstances. So we wanted to begin with our heart centered on the children and move to a discussion about what next, what now. So I'm going to give you some statistics because, because we have them, but we know something now more about what's behind it. According to the UNICEF Syrian Education Sector Analysis, Five years after the Syrian crisis began in March 2011, an estimated 13.5 million people were in need of some form of humanitarian assistance. Between 2011 and 2015, um, there was an estimated 1.3 million school-age Syrian refugees out of school at a rate of about 53%. And a report issued just this month on the Syrian education crisis indicated that there are now 1.65 million registered school-age Syrian refugee children in the five Syrian refugee host countries. This film touched upon education in the context of a very normal life for children living on the streets, normal, in a refugee camp, normal. The education of Syrian children has become a casualty of war as a consequence of not being in school and other conditions of being refugees, the rates of early marriage and child labor have risen dramatically among these children. And the longer they're out of school, the lower the likelihood they'll return and get an education. Here at Teachers College, where we're hosting this event, of course, we're all in the business of teaching and learning. So it's only fitting that the first in this series is taking place here. We're obviously devoted, devoted to our, our children, our, our students, and we're also, those of us who are teachers, we are, um, we are go-getters. We get it done. We figure out how to get things fixed um, when things get to be fixed and they have to be fixed. So in this spirit, considering the overwhelming challenges we're facing in providing access to quality education to these children and youth, we're trying to also shed a light this evening on some of the 
attempts that have been made by dedicated people, some of whom are going to be on this panel this evening, creative and dedicated practitioners who have su successfully supported the refugees' rights to education and their right to live out in human dignity uh, and to cultivate their agency, which we see reflected also in these films. So I'm delighted to be facilitating this panel. My name is Felisa Tibbetts. I'm a lecturer here at Teachers College and also the coordinator of the Peace and Human Rights Education Concentration. The panelists that we're going to have this evening, I'm just going to mention them briefly, and they'll come up individually and present for about 10 minutes each, after which we'll all sit up here and we'll have some Q&A. The panelists have bios um, that you should have received, so I won't go into detail um, in introducing them in the interest of time. Our first panelist is going to be Laura Doggett. Is Laura here? Great. <laughs> She's actually the producer and the editor of the, the last film you saw, Another Kind of Girl. She'll begin our panel. And then we're going to move to Netta Alatar, who is the director of educational programs focusing on international social impact at Sesame Street. Netta, are you here? There, Netta's right here. She'll be up then. Third person on our panel will be Aline Sara, who is the founder and CEO of Nakatalam. This is a social venture that pairs Arabic learners around the world with displaced Syrians for language practice via Skype. Who would have thought? And our final panelist is Bruce Usher, who's sitting there in the front. He is the faculty director of the Tamer Center for Social Enterprise at the Columbia Business School. And it'll be very interesting to hear how he has become engaged in this issue and some of the creative um, solutions he's, um, he's, uh, he's offered for this. So again, the, pres the presentations will take about 10 minutes, and then we'll have q and I'll ask you to keep your questions until the end. Uh, thank you all for coming. It's wonderful to see this audience. And I'd like to then um, invite Laura Doggett to come to the front. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out and watching the films. Um, I, so the photographs you'll see up on the screen were taken by girls in um, refugee Zatari camp, or Zatari refugee camp, which is where um, I first taught my workshop. And just a quick technical question, hit the clicker. I was running late, so I missed my technical. Okay, okay great. Um, <coughs> so, uh, so the photographs you see up there are taken by the, um, the girls that I worked with in Zatari refugee camp. Um, I was in Jordan to do media workshops with Syrian girls in 2014 and 2015. Uh, the first workshop took place in Zatari refugee camp. Um, and the second one took place in Urbid, which is in northern Jordan. Um, I went there on a, on a fellowship, um, a postgraduate fellowship, and my assignment was to document Syrian girls and their access to education. Um, and I did very little research before I left, and the, the little research that I did do before I left was um, 
was about how many journalists had gone through and reported two years into the war on, um, on the refugees and their stories, and 3,500 journalists had gone through that camp. Um, and it's a camp of about 80,000. So in all of the, amidst all of those stories, I didn't see any, um, any stories that were actually made by refugees themselves. So um, I proposed to my host organization, which was Save the Children, um, that we run a workshop where we would teach the girls how to um, tell their own stories and their own voices. And um, they said yes. Uh, this is work that I've been doing for about 15 years beforehand um, with teenage girls in the U.S. And, um, and so we began. Um, I, had <clears throat> I had 20 girls that I was working with in Zatri refugee camp. We only met a couple times a week. Um, and, uh, and then in Urbit, I had six girls, which was nicer to have a smaller amount of girls, and we met for six weeks. Um, and I guess just something I want to say starting off is that uh, a lot of people say, oh, Laura, it's so great that you um, gave these girls their voices. And I just want to say, like, I, I did not give them their voices. <laughs> their voices were very much there upon arrival, um, like full force inside of them. I just um, gave them some tools to be able to, um, to voice and imagine um, what they had inside and explore how to develop visual language um, and the vision to express whatever it is that they decided they wanted to express. Um, so my primary goal was not necessarily to train girls to be filmmakers, but to use documentary um, as a way to nurture creative, independent, passionate, civic-minded young women by exercising skills like thinking outside of the box and learning how to ask critical questions of themselves and their community um, and learning how to communicate with other people. Uh, Haldia, whose film you just saw, um, said, before learning to film, I felt like there was a huge part missing in my life. The only thing that filled it for me was filming. Filming makes me feel accomplished. I used to be shy, but when I started learning how to film and realized that the image of the refugee camp can be distorted by portrayals by outsiders, I knew that I needed to overcome the shyness to speak not only to the community around me, but to the people in the rest of the world. Um, so what we did, and when I say we, um, I had a translator, uh, Tazneem, who was incredible. And we gave the girls cameras for keeps. Um, that was like a stipulation for the workshop that the girls kept the cameras. Um, and the girls did most of their photo and filming uh, outside of the workshop space itself. So we, we only met for a few hours each week. Um, and so then they took their cameras home and they did most of what you saw in the film and what you see up here. Um, they did all of it actually, outside of the workshop space. Um, and so it was, really, it was really interesting to see the girls, especially the ones who had just arrived, Haldia had just arrived, um, kind of be able to like see this new place that they were in um, as a place that necessarily wasn't necessarily scary, but it was like more terrain for doing some self-exploration and discovery and, um, and just seeing their world around them in a different way. Um, so then if the girls were filming outside of the workshop, what we were, were we doing inside of the workshop? Um, and 
the workshop was really more just a space for, um, for the first few weeks we would do exercises with them to kind of like loosen up their imaginations and build their creative toolboxes. Um, and so initially we would start with, you know, movement exercises because the girls were really stiff and nervous when they first came in. Um, especially the girls who lived in the city. The girls in the camp had a little more of a community um, and they, were, they could be pretty loud at times. Um, but the girls outside um, in the city were uh, pretty, living pretty isolated lives. They, none of them are going to school um, and they were mostly in their apartments taking care of their brothers and sisters. So we would do some, some things to like loosen them up, do movement exercises, get them laughing, um, just like create a space that was um, warm and fun and where they could also like take risks and make mistakes and, um, and get back up again. So, you know, we were thinking a lot about how we were building the community as we were teaching them skills at the same time. Um, so the first few weeks we would do, uh, we did creative exercises. I had them think about point of view um, by like climbing up on things and, and climbing under things. I would send them out to, to do that. Um, so they would kind of, so it would nurture their sense of adventure um, so that they, when they were outside in the camp filming, they, they felt like they could be adventurous. Um, or we would do like photography scavenger hunts. These are some things I'm sure people do here as well. Um, and that was to get them to think more abstractly um, or more in more metaphorical ways. Um, we also did writing exercises and, um, and so we, I never gave them assignments. Uh, and if I did, it would just be abstract. It would be like fall in love with movement. Um, so I really, what I really wanted them to figure out was what they wanted to do their, tell their stories about and like what they were drawn to in terms of subject matter. Um, and that was, that was a really important piece of the workshop. Um, so as the weeks went by, after those first few weeks of doing a lot of exercises and the girls were bringing in their uh, memory cards, we started to see each girl really developing her own individual style and her own voice. Um, and it, from there, it was just a matter of encouraging her to like keep following whatever instinct um, and whatever voice was telling her to move in the direction that she was moving. Um, and, uh, you know, individually and as a group, we would also have like artists of the day um, where all the girls would come around and we would just talk about uh, one of the girls, work that one of the girls had done that day and talk about what was interesting about it. Um, and uh, so, um, I would say that probably my favorite thing about the workshop um, was how distinct each girl's work was from each other. So you saw Haldia's film um, uh, right before this, and so she had a best friend named Mara, and they would often go together to film, film in the same places. Um, but Mara's, uh, Haldia, so Haldia's style was to like, really move through spaces and take us into a place and then like reveal something new to us as viewers. Mara loved to um, just like get down on the ground with her camera and she would stay for like 10 minutes and um, watch these really beautiful moments in a very observational way. Her, her film has no, no narration. Um, these really funny 
Thank you. These really funny moments um, that were happening between kids. Um, and it's a really funny movie, actually. So the, being in the same place, they were best friends, but the, the way, what they wanted to talk about and the way that they expressed it was, were really, really different. Um, so I'm going to end on a quote. Um, and before I end on the quote, I just want to say that I think a lot of people think that um, the kids and the young people are like in a state of waiting or fear in the camps. And just at this point, at four years especially, but even when I was there two and three years ago, um, the girls are really just like learning for ways to make their lives meaningful every day. Um, and that's, that's what they're looking for. And I think um, doing things like this filmmaking workshop and other educational workshops. Um, and, and these films have also been kind of out in the world. Um, and they've told me like it, it makes them feel important and it makes it feel like they're doing something worthy with their time. Um, I'm in touch with them every day on WhatsApp, so I hear from them all the time. Um, so this is, uh, this is from Wala. Um, and this is uh, maybe an answer to why, why girls. Um, I think boys also should have workshops, but I, I work with the girls. Uh, Wala said, it's important for girls to bring these things from inside to the outside. Society often makes girls feel like they have to be ashamed of themselves. So many girls are afraid of speaking up. It's important for them to bring these things outside because girls go through things in their lives. They might have cultural barriers that make them afraid of saying certain things. I find the best mediums to use are through writing or filming. For me personally, I really think that these are the best ways to speak. I hope that each young woman is able to express her inner self and that she can just break the world. It doesn't matter, just break the world all over the place. from Sesame Street will be presenting. Um, while we're having a break, I'd like to invite those who are standing up to come up front. We've got seats here, and you're welcome to use those. Thank you. I'm not sure I know how to use this. Okay. Is it just kind of forward? Okay. This one too. Yeah, you should use this one. Perfect. I think yeah, so it's this one right here. Great. Thank Great. you. Thank you for this one. Let everyone settle in for a second. Good evening, everyone. My name is Neda Elatar. Um, thank you, Felicia, for having me here. I hope I pronounced that right. In <laughs> um, such a beautiful venue. Um, I'm here today to talk about a new partnership between Sesame Workshop, the producers of Sesame Street, um, as well as IRC, the International Rescue Committee. I'll talk a little more about Sesame Workshop and our work um, as I go along. Um, Given the recent crisis, or relatively recent crisis in Syria, um, you know, this, this topic of displacement, refugees, children being out of school, et cetera, really came to the forefront. The refugee issue is not a new issue, the displacement issue is not a new issue, but I, we do feel the magnitude of the Syria crisis really brought it to the top of a lot of people's agendas. Um, and as we look at the need, I'm not going to read through all the, the statistics, you know, but they're out there. We also have a fact sheet that covers some more information. 
Um, we at Sesame Workshop felt that there was a great need for us to intervene. We have a proven model um, of producing multimedia educational programs that work. Um, the issue is we need a, the right partner on the ground to be able to bring our content um, into these contexts that children are living in. Um, so back in May of 2016, we announced a partnership with the International Rescue Committee. Um, this slide just outlines the strengths of each organization, and you can see that there are some areas of overlap. Um, we each have, you know, decades of experience in our, in our fields, IRC specifically working on response, immediate response, direct on the ground um, throughout the world. And as Sesame Workshop, we have produced a great deal of content, not just Sesame Street, as many of you may know, but we have a presence in actually 150 countries. Um, we produce educational programming, um, you know, in the form of digital media, print, TV, radio, um, and embedded in our process is really rigorous research in terms of formative research, needs assessments, testing content before it's actually distributed it in mass, and then doing qualitative and educational impact assessments. So we really, we have educators on, on our, you know, on staff, we have developmental psychologists. Actually, many of our staff are actually graduates of Teachers College. Not me, unfortunately, but, um, but many. Um, so we, we decided to bring our two organizations together to really, um, to create a initiative without having funding, I should say. We just felt there was a need, we're going to partner and we're gonna look for funding together to be able to, to bring this initiative to life. Um, and this is just kind of an overview. I don't know what happened to the font, but um, sorry about that. I'll, I'll tell you what's up there on the slide. Um, so we felt that bringing these two partners together um, really would help us um, bring large-scale multimedia content to children that are most in need on the ground. Um, this slide just shows you where um, and how IRC has a presence in Jordan and Lebanon, two of the largest host countries um, that are now, you know, taking in Syrian refugees. And they have, a, they have a lot of different programs. I won't speak too much to them. You know, they're not here to, to speak on their own behalf. Um, but they do have, you know, they have he something called healing classrooms. Um, they have a lot of other support, um, support work on the ground and interventions that they're currently um, implementing. And what we, um, what we have as Sesame Workshop in the region is we have four very strong partners. Um, we have a partner in the UAE, the, the United Arab Emirates. We have a partner in Egypt. We have a partner in Jordan. Uh, we have a partner in Palestine within the region um, that are accustomed to producing our content in Arabic um, and that we as Sesame New York would be working with to produce, um, to produce this content. We do pride ourselves as saying that we're the longest street in the world. I don't know if it's true or not, but... Um, and we have other co-productions and, and projects in, in a lot of other places, as you can see. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about the process that we would take um, to implement this project. The very first thing we start with is an advisory. Um, we would bring experts in developmental psychology, in humanitarian response, um, in education, and other areas to, together to really tell us what the messages should be what the content of this initiative should be. We have an idea, but we don't want to, you know, we don't want to move forward without, without a stamp of approval from experts in the field. 
Um, the next thing we do is we, um, we create a curriculum, we create content, we test it, uh, we call it formative research. Um, we really test prototypes and make sure that it works and that people understand the content. Often, more often than not, we make revisions to all of our content. Before we do a mass distribution, we launch the programs, we um, do monitoring and evaluation throughout, and then we do assessments, and we start to, we, throughout the process, we also talk about sustainability. Um, as many of you know, in development, it is a challenge for, for all. Um, and the proposed program that we're putting together with IRC really covers, these are the three main components of it, an integrated curriculum. So we would actually design a curriculum that is a global core curriculum that could work for the Syrian refugee crisis, but also for other similar situations. Um, and of course, we would tailor for each region or each country or even each province, we, we can then tailor that core curriculum um, to whatever specific needs exist in a particular country. Um, we, would want, we would create, and we've done this in the past, adaptable multimedia resources and training. Um, that's another thing we do, um, and I didn't mention earlier, that we do teacher training as well as parent training. Um, you know, we would produce content in the form of mass media, TV, radio, digital, print. Um, you know, once we, we have needs assessments that have already been done and we have a sense of what kind of content we would need, types of content. We probably would need all of this in various contexts. We would use, we would use one form or, or another. And then we definitely want to um, do a great deal of research around this and contribute to the pretty limited body of research that exists today um, around education in crisis settings and education in general, I would say. Um, and this is just going in, into the curriculum a little bit more. Some of you may be interested in this. Uh, broadly speaking, we would address issues like resiliency, problem solving, conflict resolutions, uh, conflict resolution, as well as literacy and numeracy, all of which are areas that Sesame Workshop has actually addressed in the past. Um, we would create multimedia adaptable material. I talked about that a little bit in the past. Um, and here, <laughs> This, I think this has to do with art. We have a font that may not be read, may not be read properly by your computer. Um, but this, this slide really talks about research and um, you know, the, the types of research that I mentioned earlier that we would want to create. Um, we would want to do a qualitative assessment probably midway throughout the, the project and a, an educational impact uh, study as well. They're nice pictures though. Hopefully you enjoy those. Um, Oh, I have to, I can't remember what this one was. Let me just take a look. Um, uh, this slide just goes into the implementation strategies a bit, and I'm actually gonna, gonna skip it if that's okay. There is a video I wanna show you, so I wanna make sure I get through all the slides. Um, all right, I'm gonna skip that too. So this is a really important slide, so I'm gonna talk through it um, because you can't see anything that's on there. So um, the impact of Sesame Workshop's previous work um, is comparable to dedicated preschool interventions, um, but on a vastly larger scale. What that first um, you know, diagram shows is um, that kids 
across the world gain 12 percentile points on learning outcomes when they watch Sesame Street television programming. Now this is, was conducted by the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It's a um, meta-analysis um, of all of our programming across the globe in middle-income and low-income countries. And what that really means is that in a class of 100 children, a child um, would go from a ranking of 50th to 38th after watching our Sesame Street programming. So it's just to give a sense, and that's pretty, um, that's, you know, it's pretty significant. Um, so I will move to the next one. We are looking at a um, kind of two-phase approach, an inception phase. So we would want to do some testing in Jordan, Lebanon, um, and then a larger scale rollout. I do want to, I'm gonna skip if that's okay. <laughs> and this just, it's kind of a summary of everything I talked about. Um, because I really want to show you this video, um, and I'm not sure how to start it. This is a video from um, a visit to Zaatari refugee camp that Sesame Workshop and IRC collaborated on. Um, it's a little bit lighter than, than some of the, you know, it's, it's a light side of, of the music and everything that Sesame brings, brings, it a little, brings it a little more lightness to it. So please, you can go ahead. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. That was uplifting. Um, I'd like to invite Aline Sara of Natakalam to, to come and share. Thank you. So um, that is a pretty uh, accurate summary of, of Natakalam. So we're um, an online uh, platform that pairs Arabic learners around the world with uh, displaced Syrians. Uh, I, I tend to have issues with the word refugee today. I find it overly simplistic. So I think displaced Syrians is a much more accurate term. So I'm just curious in this room, who has, um, who is originally from the Middle East or Middle Eastern and who has otherwise traveled and worked in the region? Just out of curiosity, okay, great. Um, who speaks Arabic or has tried to learn Arabic like myself actually? Okay, great. So you, you guys are familiar with the complexity of Arabic and the discrepancy between modern standard Arabic and the colloquial uh, version, which is actually what Natagalim is playing on and focusing on. So we are at an event at Teachers College uh, on education. So what Raif, who you saw in the video, did not state is that he is actually, and he was actually a student. Uh, Raif was studying computer science at Aleppo University when the war broke out. And as many other Syrians who are um, male in, in that age, they are forced to choose between joining Assad and fighting along the Assad regime's forces or being drafted by ISIS or other rebel forces. Um, so we are actually um, not looking at education from the, the younger, um, from the children's perspective, which tends to be what we focus on. We're actually um, looking to support many of these Syrians who actually completed their education or, was actually going, or were actually going to complete their education and now find themselves with very little. So we always think of refugees as once they're resettled, it's good, it's great, 
but actually so many of these individuals are um, arriving to Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, and they might get housing and they might get some minimal aid, but they literally have nothing to do and are not allowed to work legally. So through the internet economy, we are hiring them and they are the educators on our platform. They are teaching Arabic to individuals around the world who are learning the language. So just to give you um, a few more numbers, about 30% of our current students are Syrians who have made it to Germany and France, either by going through the tedious migrant route, sometimes a month and a half of journeys, which cost them up to $30,000 paying smugglers most of the time. They've made it to Europe, and in France and in Germany, they are um, asked to go and learn French and German while they and adapt to the culture, and they get a small stipend. Some of them end up getting a scholarship. However, many of them have told us that through Natakalam, they are actually able to maximize their studies because they have an income. So this brings me to the topic of labor laws and jobs. So we also tend to think of education and address it separately from the need for job creation. And actually there's been a number of reports, including a recent one by Human Rights Watch, that discusses how access to education and lawful employment are inextricably linked. So we are also working on this front, that we can't just provide education, we need to make sure that children can afford to go to school, that their parents aren't sending them to work because there might be schooling, but they actually can't afford to have them go to school. And same goes for the Syrians we're working with who are in their 20s and 30s, typically. I also, um, I kind of want to use this, this um, moment to also tackle a few generalizations we have about refugees and address them very quickly. And I know Meredith has asked me to be very quick. So a few other distinctions I want to raise is the difference between urban refugees and camp refugees. We always tend to focus on camp refugees. It's very important to pay attention to the urban ones because they sometimes will have much less access to their, their they're on their own, and so they also need some support system. And actually, all of our Syrians are urban refugees. We are developing a program in a camp in Halba, which is in nor northern Lebanon, but we do remain very focused on urban refugees. Um, so we are also at a program called Perspectives on Peace. So um, I also want to touch on the fact that Netakalam is also a indirect conflict resolution mediation type of programming where we are giving people direct access to um, the people we are talking about, to the Middle Easterners who are often portrayed in the media, as you obviously know, and not only in the media, but some of, some of our most prominent politicians might be also saying certain things that are important to, um, you, know, you know, things that we must dispel. So we are also um, creating some sort of cultural education, and it's a two-way front. I have some American students who tell me, wow, I, I can't believe um, my Syrian conversation partner likes Pink Floyd. Um, and then we'll have um, some, you know, some, uh, <laughs> some of the Syrian conversation partners who tell me, it's okay, Aline, they, they miss their class, but I know Americans are very busy all the time. So, you know, they, it's, but I understand, they're very ambitious. So um, it's very, you know, wonderful to see this type of uh, relationship developing. Um, and um, I also want to mention one thing also about um, the psychosocial component of what we're doing. Um, these Syrians have suddenly regained their, um, their self, their identity, as Raith says. They are the ones teaching. So we're flipping things around. We always want to help 
refugees, they can help us on so many other levels. And, and the Syrians I'm working with are always giving me tricks for like computers and, and technology that I'm, even though I have a tech startup, not very good with. Um, and finally, because we're gonna be having uh, Bruce speak after, um, Natakalam is a startup. We have approached um, uh, the project from a startup angle, and I think it's really wonderful to see the attention around social impact initiatives. I think that the aid world and um, the humanitarian sector is in tremendous crisis. I think it is very important that we start to apply more small-scale startups that we will then scale, because if you come from the startup world, and I never was a startup fan, I just fell into it. Actually, I'm a journalist and human rights background, but I, I've realized that when you operate in a startup, you take more risks, and you start and you focus on one small thing. And you know, NGOs, the UN, all these organizations, they always wanna talk about massive millions of refugees being aided. Let's just transform all, like Jordan, Lebanon. I mean, every single country has such a different dynamic. Every single category of refugee is so different. Um, and I think that for those who are interested in going into the sector, I think it's really important to start small and to the way you learn in startups is you test your product very small and then you scale up. And you know, I think that's a really good approach now for those who want to really make a difference in, um, in, this, in the world and on the refugee issue. So thank you. to our final speaker, um, Professor Bruce Usher from Columbia Business School. And the uh, floor is yours. Thank you. Aline, thank you for the uh, shout out on social ventures. And what, what she didn't st say is that um, creating a successful social venture is really hard to do. So congratulations on what you've created with Nectacolum. It's really, uh, really impressive. You might be asking yourself what someone from the business school is doing here this evening. Um, we don't really focus on education. We don't necessarily focus on refugee issues at the business school. But what we do in the Tamer Center at the business school is we focus on the intersection between business and society. Anytime those two intersect, uh, my center is involved. And this particular issue, the refugee crisis, a global refugee crisis, not just a Syrian crisis, or in fact, to your point, it's really a global displaced persons crisis, is a humanitarian crisis. I think everybody can agree on that. But it's also an economic crisis. There's 65 million people who, by and large, have lost the ability to work and lost the ability to go to school. If we took the population of the United Kingdom and suddenly they were all entirely unemployed, and out of school, we would call that an economic crisis, and that's what it is. So uh, that's how I ended up here in front, of, in front of the room. We know, in this common knowledge, that uh, displaced persons have a tremendously difficult time accessing education, in particular, higher education. And that's what the rest of what I'm going to tell you about uh, focuses on. Um, the 34% number, they use the word university. I, I think they actually mean all forms of higher education, including vocational training and the like. And actually, that number is a little bit unrealistically high. But I also think the 1% is unrealistically high. It's extraordinarily difficult for a displaced person to find an opportunity for higher education. There are, in fact, some, uh, there is some support out there. There are some scholarships and the like, primarily to uh, universities in Europe. 
But as you can see, there's enormous demand that's unmet. The estimated demand, very roughly, nobody knows exactly, is about, from the Syrian crisis alone, is about 200,000 students who were in college or should be in college or university and are not at this point in time. So obviously these programs really uh, don't make it. They don't cut it. The question is why? Well, there are two reasons. One is logistics. It's very challenging to logistically take people from one region and educate them somewhere, or in that region, there are many logistical challenges. And the biggest challenge of all, more than logistics, is cost. You all know how expensive higher education is, um, as, as you see here at Columbia. The problem is that as, as expensive as higher education is, the cost of not being educated is even higher. And there's, there's a wealth of data out there, and I think here in this building, there's probably some, some very good data on this issue. The fact of the matter is that lifetime earnings, average earnings and lifetime earnings, and we present value those earnings to today, lifetime earnings are very closely linked to education, particularly higher education. And so on the one hand, higher education is tremendously expensive. On the other hand, we know that if you don't get it, your lifetime economic potential declines. So what we have with displaced persons is this situation. We have a group of individuals. This is not the majority of people. This is actually a small number. But a number of individuals who were on a track to go to college. They were through high school, or maybe they already entered college, but they were not able to complete it because of the, because of the war. Had they maintained that track, we can know what their economic potential would have been. It would have been very high. They'd be up here. And now because of what's happened, they're here. They've been knocked down to the bottom. They've been pushed down. And if we don't get them back on that track within a few years, they will lose that opportunity forever. If you don't get higher education, pretty much between the ages of 30, 18 and 30, the economics start to decline very quickly because your peak earning years are in your 30s and 40s and well, I'm getting beyond my peak earning years, let's put it that way. So the question really is, can we do anything about this? Can we take this group of individuals and get them back on the track? So I, I initiated a study back in the spring with a bunch of business school students, a bunch of MBA students to look at this particular challenge. And uh, in the summer, we hired through the Tamer Center four students to work on this full-time through the summer. And these are the students, and as you can see, uh, three of the four students are from the region, uh, from Jordan, Lebanon, and, and Egypt, and the fourth student is American, but she's a journalism uh, joint degree with the business school. And we started talking to people, and we went to the region, uh, we met with an awful lot of organizations, about 60 organizations altogether. Um, and Columbia University, it turns out, has a tremendous advantage over probably any institutional organization in the world at doing this kind of work, because we have global centers at Columbia University in Amman, Jordan, in um, Istanbul, Turkey, that are very, very well connected, very well positioned to deal with these kind of issues. And then we have an enormous number of alumni in the region at a very high level. And through those relationships, we were able to meet with ministers of education, ministers of social work, high UNHCR officials, you name it, we met with everyone. And Here's what we found, um, that coming from Columbia University and walking into the situation, 
there is a crying need for us to show some leadership on this issue. Not because we can solve the problem, clearly no, and not because we're gonna solve the problem for even a material number of individuals. At most, we can bring a handful of students to this university, as big as we are. But because when a university like Columbia or our peer schools does something in this area, it sends a very powerful message. It sends a message to the region and it sends a message here in the United States. And people hear that message. And the problem today is there is an absence of leadership. That among universities in the United States, almost nothing is being done to date. There are no formal programs in place to bring displaced persons here from anywhere, let alone the Syrian crisis. So um, we are gonna try to work with a, uh, a large group of partners in the region to find candidates uh, to bring them here to Columbia starting next year. We're looking to launch the program next month. Uh, President Bollinger at a seminar event last week, actually exactly a week ago, uh, talked about this program that we're putting together. We got approval last week uh, to go forward with it from uh, legal approval to do this. And um, the objective is as follows. It is to identify a small number of applicants to Columbia um, who have been displaced in the region. Those applicants will apply to one of four schools, the School of General Studies, which is undergraduate, School of Engineering, undergraduate, SIPA, the Policy School, and the Business School. The admissions process is through those schools. Uh, if they are accepted and uh, there's clear need on their part, financial need, uh, we will provide funding for tuition, for living, for housing, for all costs, including getting here uh, and other administrative expenses. And this program, what we're trying to design the program around is not just to help a small number of individuals, but to communicate a message. The message is that displaced persons have tremendous economic potential that they have the potential to become productive citizens and give back over time. And that's the pay it forward ethos of that. To be honest, that's a fairly complex challenge here and one we're still uh, working out and in the initial cohort will probably um, won't formalize that initially. Um, I'm gonna take you through these numbers because we're a bit, uh, or these dates, but uh, we hope to launch it next month. Actually, we expect to launch it next month with the first cohort coming in, in, this, in the, in the uh, fall next year. Uh, there is a challenge in there, I'll just point out, um, and the challenge goes beyond funding and logistics and everything else. Um, there's one of the challenge, which is visas. Uh, for students uh, coming to the United States from almost any country in the world, it's not a challenge if you've been admitted to Columbia and you have funding. But if you are a displaced person, um, it is a huge challenge because the way the Immigration Act is written, you cannot uh, honestly state you'll return to your country of origin, and this caused a bit of a problem. Um, and post-pilot, we're hoping to engage other leading universities. We hope to show leadership by example um, and get our peer schools to engage programs. We like to expand the number of schools at Columbia that are involved. Uh, we've spoken with, met with 19 out of 20 of Columbia schools and expand the scope beyond the Syrian refugee crisis. The crisis there is obviously the, 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 the largest, most significant at the moment, but there are a large number of others who are displaced. Uh, so let me stop there. The diversity of the presentations we've had, moving from a, a, a filmmaker to a person on the preschool to a social entrepreneurial program that involves displaced Syrian people.
Hello. Hello. Thank you for being here today. Um, regarding the Refugee Scholarship Program, how does uh, it aim to help refugees in camps, specifically maybe ones in Greece? And can you talk a little bit more about that, please? I'm wondering if you have any uh, provisions to address some of the other spillover effects of the uh, Syrian refugee crisis, like as it happens in Kurdistan with ISIS. Like, there's some, they're not Syrians necessarily, but it's other ISIS refugees, IDPs, these sorts of things. So, the, the first question is easy to answer. We're, we're not directly looking for displaced persons in, in Greece. Um, that's not to say that someone who's there could not apply. Anyone who can demonstrate they've been displaced from the Syrian crisis can apply. Um, as long as they're not already here in the U.S. with immigrant papers. And the reason for that is that they're already here. As you know, it's a relatively small number. But if they're here, they're eligible for government funding. They can get government loan support uh, access. But anyone outside the country does not have that access. And so anyone's eligible. The reason why we focus on Lebanon, Turkey, and Jordan, first of all, that's where the vast majority of displaced folks are at the moment. And we have very strong relationships there. Um, in terms of uh, other areas of the world, um, again, sort of the same, the same answer, where we're trying to be very focused initially and uh, get the program going. One of the many things we've learned through this process is um, it's extraordinarily complicated situation. I don't have to tell you that, you know better than I do. But for example, um, in the region, many people have been displaced multiple times. They're not necessarily Syrians. They may have been Palestinians or Israel. There's Palestinian Syrians. There are Syrian Palestinians. There are all sorts of other categories. Um, we have simply defined it as they've been displaced due to the conflict. We're, we're oversimplifying, to be honest. 
Hi, yeah, thank you guys for being here. That was really great. Um, so I know you mentioned that your intention is to provide leadership to other universities, and I didn't pick up specifically if you've already started talking to those other schools, but I would just be interested, have you started those conversations with other schools what, or with other universities? What has been the response? And if you've no, I, just anything that you've noticed specifically that's been interesting and in how other schools have responded, because I know this is a really complex and can be a very charged issue, so. Um, I have a question for um, anybody. Um, I have a quick question for Bruce, if that's okay. Uh, thanks for the presentation. I was struck and confused by one thing that you said, which was that you uh, saw the economic potential. And can you clarify that? So first of all, on, on other schools, we have not spoken to any other schools outside of Columbia. Columbia is 20 schools, one university with 20 schools. We have not spoken to other schools simply because we don't think it's appropriate to do so until we have really something, some experience to, to discuss. What we do know is what other universities have done to date. And I said no one has done anything. That's not quite true. There are two universities, two colleges actually, in Illinois. Illinois Institute of Technology has taken 50 Syrian refugees, which is like so far ahead of everybody else, it's unbelievable. Um, and Monmouth College, not the New Jersey one, but there's one in, uh, I think, Iowa? I'm not sure, somewhere in the middle of the country. Um, that's taken a dozen or so. Other than that, there is no program that we're, we're aware of. Harvard has taken one student, Brown is taking one this year, bits and pieces. That's what we know today, not much. Economic potential. Um, so. We come back to why are we doing this? And the reason we are doing this is because we need to demonstrate that there is some solutions out there. And we don't mean political solutions, we're talking about educational and, and economic ones. And certainly here in the US, there is, and, and many other parts of the world, there's a perspective that displaced persons are a liability, they are a cost, they are a burden that we need to support with aid. And the answer is we do need to support with aid. There's a crisis. People are in terrible situation. But we happen to believe, and this is a very business school way of looking at things, that looking at displaced peoples through that lens has a real downside to it. That people are tired of having to support, they don't want to, they feel they have their own issues and so on. And you only have to look at the debate we're going to see very shortly to see just how serious this issue is today. So we happen to believe that changing public discourse, changing public perception is perhaps the most important thing we can do. And the way we can do that is by educating people and sending them off to great careers. One of the, um, one of the individuals who actually graduated from Illinois Institute of Technology now works at Goldman Sachs. Now, some of you may say Goldman Sachs, that's not your idea of you know, maximizing economic benefit for society. I'll put that aside, right? <laughs> Plenty of our graduates go work there and we're very proud of that. But in all seriousness, you know what? When someone who was displaced from the conflict in Syria, whose family had to flee Aleppo, which is where she's from, and she ends up with a career at Goldman Sachs, that sends a message that's really powerful. And that's what we're trying to do through this program. And, and my sincere apologies for, for having to leave.
Hi, um, I was just wondering um, if a student has an idea that they would like um, to bring to a camp, like an education initiative, um, are there steps that they can take um, that would help them bring it there? I guess, like what is the best way that someone can take an idea and bring it to fruition? In terms of anybody, I guess. I can answer briefly. Um, in terms of my organization, I mean, we're, we're welcome to ideas. Um, those ideas would be owned by the organization, so just a disclaimer, but um, I think we're open to, you know, if somebody has an innovative solution for something, we're definitely open to learning and, and um, exploring that. I think it's... I, I just wasn't able to hear with people leaving, so... If, if you have an idea and that you want to bring it to a camp, what, what steps can you take? What is the process? Right. Well, um, I think there, I, I myself went to work um, in the camp the first time through a fellowship. Um, but uh, I think that if you're up for volunteering, I think um, you're able to connect with some organizations and, um, and like you said, just bring, bring your ideas um, to the organization. I think the, the organizations I saw in the camp and worked with um, are very open to new ideas. Uh, and excited about new ideas. And the young people in the camp definitely are, so. Uh, my only, can you guys hear me? Yes. My only comment on that would be, um, there's a tremendous amount of activity and ideas and things going on, especially around the refugee crisis. And I think that if you have an idea, it's great, but it's really important to do the research and make sure someone isn't already doing it. Because I've seen so much reinvention of the wheel. There's a tremendous amount of waste when people want to help the refugee community make some changes. It's, I believe it's much more efficient to join forces with other existing organizations that might be doing this already. And so that would be in addition to everything else you've heard, I think I'm all for it, just go for it, research your idea. We had this idea for Natak Adam. we researched to see if there's anything else going on like this. Because there's just so many people who really want to help, and a lot of people will end up having similar ideas, but then you know they, they go into it and then someone else is doing the same thing, they just haven't communicated. And we're finding this issue is really big in the refugee relief community. A lot of people are doing overlap. Someone comes to me and like, I want to create a refugee app where you know, you know where to go to the checkpoint, what to do, and that's already been done. So yeah, that would just be my comment on that. Thank you. Um, hi, uh, I have a question for Nada from Sesame Street. Um, I, I do recognize the importance of play and of uh, expressing the childhood and how underestimated this is in a lot of programs and um, especially in like displaced situations where this is kind of overlooked so no one really focuses. So um, I, I understand that you, um, like you, do, you spend a lot of time doing inception and research and you focus on things like um, conflict resolution and, and healing spaces. But from what I saw, uh, like the film that you showed, I found a few things like a bit problematic. And um, like, for example, first the production of it where um, this, the kids are made to learn like a promo text about the project. And then th the things that I saw was 
Um, for example, there was a Sesame Street like doing a performance of entertainment, and then there was this line that divided them with the with the kids, and then doing the activities in class where where they were like coloring in, coloring in the pictures. And I wonder what like kind of approaches that you take that are not represented in the video, because I feel that there's a, there's not much like participation or like. I didn't feel much of like, I didn't see where the kids have learned other than they had a good time, which is very important, but with an opportunity um, to go and to work with the kids, there could be so much more done in terms of play and entertainment and participation. Yeah, I, I can answer, definitely. Um, I should have caveated, this was not an, an educational intervention. Um, I happened to be in Amman to give a presentation um, and we thought it would be great to self-fund a fun day for the kids. So this was not intended at all to be an educational intervention. It's really just a fun day for them to interact. In terms of the lines, there are a lot of restrictions about safety. That was not actually our idea. It was not what we would want in terms of having like a, you know, designated space for the kids to play, to sit. Um, but that was something that um, our co-organizer, um, you know, insisted on just to keep the kids safe. Um, and frankly, to keep our, our Muppet characters safe too, because if one kid, um, you know, touches them the wrong way, they'll, they'll, they'll get knocked down. So that, that's not something that's typical. This is not a intervention per se. Um, I did want to touch on the importance of play. You brought up a great, great point. Um, you know, play is overlooked. Um, on, in so many contexts, not just the displaced children's context, uh, as a form of education and learning. Um, and the definition of play is actually the, the problem. It's the definition of play really puts it in the category of, you know, something recreational you do on the side, that those activities, play-based activities that we do try to engage in as much as possible, are sometimes the core and fundamentals to, to what kids are able to learn, something like crossing the midline. You know, you can identify problems if a child isn't able to, to play in a certain way. Um, and there's a lot that you can learn just from observing and watching kids play or not able to play and engage. Um, I hope that that answers your question a little bit. Um, it's more of a comment back to you, though. Thanks. Yeah. I've been told I should use the mic so that I'm heard better. We, I'd like to take two questions now. So if there's a mic on this side, it can go to this lady and a mic on that side, you're all set up good. So we'll have two questions and then yeah. uh, Thank you so much. I'm Annika Lajan from Meaningful World and I wanted to applaud uh, all these creative, wonderful ideas to educate and empower the refugees or displaced people. I was wondering, a lot of the research, uh, and of course Teachers College has a big psychology program, there's a lot of psychological pain and suffering that uh, these families and children will go through. Um, and what attempts have you made to have a psychologist on your team? And if you don't have that, we have the resources at Meaningful World. We can help you with that. We work in 45 countries. Thank you. Your comment is for all the panelists? Yes. Okay, thank you. Please. Thank you very much for the wonderful work that you are all doing and for presenting here. Uh, my question is particularly to Nata Kalam. Um, do you have research and are you documenting each of these cases? And do you have opportunities for students to be involved? <laughs> 
So when you ask if we're documenting cases, are you talking about the individual Syrians we're working with? Are we profiling them, or do we know their yes. story? Doing case studies, I mean, it's a tremendous opportunity for qualitative research and uh, to prove <laughs> the impact, et cetera. Uh, we've never thought of it that way. Um, we'll usually uh, ask about their story just kind of in the interview process. They are, they are treated like a normal person applying to a job. They go through an interview process. We assess their skills. Um, we are trying to minimize this kind of, you know, this specimen that we have of refugee. They're, they're people, and so they will go through a normal process. Uh, you know, I think that treating them as qualitative research could be good, but it's a little bit too much treating them as, like, an external for now. But, I mean, these individuals are extremely inspiring people who have been through an amazing amount of challenges and difficulties and are overcoming them. And I think we tend to want to baby people sometimes, and I think that sometimes just giving them a little bit of leverage to, to use what they have in return is, is extremely helpful. So, um, but I mean, a little bit more about the, the Syrians we're working with, um, probably half of them are from Aleppo. For those following the news, what is going on in Aleppo is just horrible. Um, these people will probably never go back to Syria and they're rebuilding their lives. They've some of them have gone, have survived torture, imprisonments. Um, some of them have a sharp nail. I mean, really, like the whole story. This is what people are going through. So, I mean, I mean, but in terms of, I've never thought of of looking at them for, you know, in that respect. Uh, would, anybody, would you, any of you, like to respond to the comments we offer for psychological assistance? I, I would definitely like to. Um, I would love to talk to you after if you're staying. We do have um, developmental psychologists and ECD experts on staff, but we, we definitely go outside of our own circle to, you know, to get advice um, and to work with people. So I would definitely love to have a conversation. Um, in terms of, you know, the children in crisis or children who are displaced, you know, they're dealing with experiences that the typical the average child we can comfortably say is not experiencing loss of home, loss of loved ones, leaving everything behind, their favorite toy. You know, there's there's nothing left in their lives that's normal. So they go through, you know, these a number of adverse experiences that increase their likelihood of having, you know, later, you know, negative health, health outcomes later in life. Um, their risk of being unemployed later in life, not being well-educated, et cetera, is much greater. And I think what we're trying to do is intervene at that critical point. Um, there is a potential with the Syria crisis and many others for a, a lost generation, um, per se, and, and actually linking onto some of the things that Bruce is talking about. You know, w the earlier you start, you know, I think we can all agree, the earlier you start, the better. Um, to just kind of set somebody up in a, to be in a better position to where they're more likely to succeed um, even at that young age and to kind of just counteract some of the, the, the toxic things that they're going through in their lives. Whether they're living in a camp or outside of a camp, as Aline mentioned, you know, 80% or so of Syrian refugees are living outside the camp. So we definitely are looking to intervene in the camps and outside as well for that context. I, did that catch every part of your question? Um, yeah, I would say that uh, the girls that I work with have been through a lot of experiences and that we, if there's something critical that comes up in our workshop space that, uh, 
that I have an organization that I'm working with that I can go and speak with. Um, in general, uh, we try and build a really safe space um, with the group that we're working with, and we try and build relationships between them as well as us. Um, and I think the girls come in, at, mostly like they're really excited to come in, um, and they, they're like looking for something um, to do, you know, beyond um, just kind of thinking about what happened all the time. So there, people all say like, oh, it must be hard to work with them and their stories. And I say, you know, it's like my favorite part of the day because they're really excited when they come in. And um, so, but we, we do, um, we are aware of building that kind of space in our group. Um, no, I'll, I'll briefly say that, of course, psychosocial support is immensely needed. And when Bruce talks about scholarships, I mean, these Syrians who will be coming on scholarships might as well also be needing that type of support. And a lot of Syrians who are on scholarships um, already, you know, they mention how important this is for them. With regards to Natakalam, we are, I like to call us a tiny little cute startup that is <laughs> trying to grow. So eventually, as we grow, when we get more funding, we would love to incorporate psychosocial support into the work we do. But actually, the, the interaction between the Syrians, the Syrian conversation partners, and the students is itself a form of, of psychosocial support. He said it, I've said it, he's found all these friends around the world. Um, the, you know, they become buddies. I have some people who tell me they're, they're not taking Natakalam for Arabic. They're taking it for the friendship aspect. So it, it's somewhat of its own psychosocial support. Thank you, good point. I think we can have a couple more, just two more rounds of questions, again, two each. I'd like to uh, especially um, make sure there's a space for someone, I think to ask a question to Laura Doggett, because we've had questions um, specifically targeting um, the other organizations here. So if you have a question also for Laura, let us know, and we'll be sure that you ask your question. Okay. I do have a question for Laura. Hi, thank you all so much for sharing your work. It was really wonderful. Um, so Laura, you mentioned, or a few of you mentioned the difference between camp-based and urban-based refugees, which I really appreciated. Um, and Laura, you mentioned that the um, urban-based refugee girls that you worked with often had a greater sense of isolation because they were um, often kept in their homes. They had to watch over their siblings. And I did research in Amman this summer, and I found, with girls specifically, I found exactly the same thing, um, that this was a huge challenge that they they were dealing with was this sense of isolation. So I'm wondering if you could speak about how um, your workshops, maybe the sustainability of that, how that could reduce their sense of isolation moving forward after your workshops have ended. And also if you could maybe address a little bit more about the context concerning this phenomenon, why girls and refugee girls in cities are dealing with, with, uh, with these challenges. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much um, for this nice interventions that you've mentioned. But actually for a Sesame Street program, I would like to know, you said you have like an integrative curriculum. I would like to know, do you have like numeracy and literacy skills integrated into this curriculum? Because this basically are the foundation of an educational scheme for children who are like developing their brains. They need to have like these practices for them to be able to, um, be able to fit into the society even as they grow. Thank you. Um, so what I found was that the girls in the camp, um, they were traveling around together to go to different activity centers, and they had formed a group in the community um, 
with each other, and I think that had a huge, a lot to do with why they had a lot of hope and energy, and um, and like I said, the two groups when they came in were very different. So the ones in the camp were really loud, and we, we had to figure out ways to kind of like calm them down in the beginning. Um, and I think it's just because they they um, they live in the same neighbor, they live next to each other, they're out moving around in a camp um, where it's all Syrian. Um, and so I think just the, the like bonds that they've made by being able to just stay together as a group um, have been good. They they also take care of their siblings, but they're you know they're doing it together or they're doing it next to each other. Um, the girls in Urbid, I, I can only speak to Urbid where I was. Um, they, um, I'm not I'm not totally sure how they um, found our workshop. I think the, their mothers were going to the women's center at at IRC. Um, and so, but prior to coming to the workshop, they had literally just been taking care of the kids um, in their apartments. And I think um, being in an urban area is just, um, you know, Jordan, at least Jordan wants everyone to be in the camps. So a lot of um, the refugee families that I worked with um, are, you know, nervous to go outside or, or don't know where to seek help, um, and so, and, and then they also can't work, the parents can't work, so they're inside a lot. Um, and for these girls in particular, they were the older siblings, so they were taking care of their, their younger ones. Um, so the girls, um, like I said, when they came in the first day, they were very nervous and stiff, they didn't know each other, um, and, uh, but just within a few days of like doing creative um, work with them, they, they loosened up and they were, we were making, you know, putting a lot of attention into them forming bonds. And so I think actually for a while after we left, they continued to meet as a group um, at the center at the same time and the same day. And they would work with kids in the center. Um, but in terms of sustainability, I'm going back in a couple weeks um, and I'm uh, try, well, I'm, I'm going to work with them more and, and do some more like deeper training, but then also figure out a way to set up um, a center or a space in Urban and a space in Zatri where the girls can continue to make this work on their own. Um, so like, on, on all different levels, like technically, you know, story-wise, how to sustain it financially. So, Thanks. We also had a comment on curriculum, which I want to give you the opportunity to respond to, but before we, we leave the topic of urban refugees, I just wanted to highlight for those of you who are Columbia students that there's going to be a workshop tomorrow, an ITSF workshop um, that's going to present uh, some of the research that's been carried out by some faculty here and students, including Dominique, uh, on their, uh, the research on, on urban refugees and education. So that's happening tomorrow here on campus at TC from 1 to 2.30, I believe, and it's in uh, what Russell 305, for those of you new to, to Teachers College, that's like the library side. So if you're interested in that particular topic, there'll be some sharing of research findings. So I want to plug that. So um, any responses to the comments on curriculum? Short responses, perhaps, so we get one more round of questions. This yeah, um, sure, I'll try, I'll try. <laughs> um, regarding the curriculum, um, yes, literacy and numeracy or mathematics are part of almost every curriculum that we um, create. Um, and if we're teaching, for example, if we're producing content on wash, water, sanitation, hygiene, 
uh, we would integrate literacy and numeracy into that. We recognize the importance um, of literacy and numeracy as kind of a core of all of our curricula. Um, in this case, I should mention for both the refugee population, but also for the host communities as well. Um, and that's something that we're integrating into our program. Does that answer your question? Kind of? Next door, afterwards. Okay, one more round of questions, and my apologies to those of you who had questions and weren't able to ask them. And there's one more hand up, so that might work really perfectly. Sorry. So, uh, so thank you for creating the curriculum, and it's like exactly what I want to be doing, so it's really cool. Um, and I was wondering how extensive is the teacher training, and the, is there an extra curriculum for that as well? Um, especially in the context of host countries for teaching. Uh, okay, uh, so it's not, it's more of a comment than it is a question. It's just a thank you for these small initiatives really do make a difference. I'm one of the students that Professor Bruce was talking about earlier. I got a scholarship, I'm a Syrian refugee myself, got a scholarship at Illinois of Technology. Um, graduated and now I go to school here for my master's. So small interventions, but they really do make big difference. So thank you very much for those. I'll, I'll try to be succinct as well. Um, we, we do not, our interventions really focus on children. Um, we do teacher training. It's not, you know, we're not the, the experts in the field of that. There are many other organizations that are much, probably much more proficient at it, but we do do it. Um, you know, we, re we recognize the importance of linking what a child is experiencing with what the teacher and or caregiver is experiencing. So we, we make every effort and we're, we're making more efforts to, to work in that, in that setting, but also to work with the right people who are already doing it. So IRC has great programming that focuses on parents and caregivers. That's one of the reasons why we're working with them. World Vision has great, great, um, you know, training for caregivers and teachers um, in various parts of the world. We're partnering with them on another initiative. Um, so we really try to match, to, to link ourselves with people who can complement what we bring um, in order not to reinvent the wheel where we may not be experts. And thank you so much, by the way. I don't know your name for introducing yourself. That's uh, wonderful. I, uh, this is a chance for us to thank the panelists once again. Thank you so much for coming. These, these people are really, really busy. And um, really, thank you so much for finding time. Many of you had multiple events this evening. Perhaps you have yet another one. I know Bruce did. So thank you so much for taking your time to come to Teachers College and share your experiences and your insights and inspire us um, for the work you're doing. Um, I also wanted to, um, before we move to Wine and Cheese, I just wanted to thank um, the organizers of this, um, of this event, um, especially my colleagues at um, ICCCR and AC4. I didn't know how to do those acronyms until after planning for this event with them, but Meredith Smith and Drew Faum have been amazing. 
absolutely amazing. Thank you guys, it was wonderful to work with you. And I also wanna thank the students. Many, many students were involved in making this happen. If you're not from Teachers College and you came and you saw students who were registering you, you saw students at tables, um, you saw students passing out mics. Um, this was really a collaborative event and we're just so happy that it was a collaborative event that you joined us and thank you for being with us here. So um, on that note, um, carry on and we'll see you at Wine and Cheese. We hope you enjoyed the diversity of presentations that we have heard from the September 26th Perspectives on Peace event at Columbia University on education and empowerment in the refugee crisis. The presentations included a filmmaker, an international development practitioner working in preschool education, a social entrepreneur and activist who runs a tutoring and Arabic language learning program, and a Columbia professor who leads social entrepreneurship in higher education. For more information about the event, contact AC4 at Columbia's Earth Institute. The music for this show was written and composed by Kevin Johnston and is titled Kingdom Stowaway. <laughs> <laughs>